Welcome to the Lighthouse Conversations, a podcast featuring entrepreneurs and tastemakers from the worlds of arts and culture, tech, and of course, food. I'm your host, Hesha Montasser. If you're joining us here for the first time, you can follow the show and the podcast app on your phone, either Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or any of the other podcast players. You can also listen to any and all of our previous episodes at thelighthouse.ae slash podcast. Again, go to thelighthouse.ae slash podcast. I'm joined today by my friend Sandil Hayek, who is currently the general manager at Time Out Market Dubai, which is the first regional version of their very popular food hall concept, the one you can find in cities like New York, Miami, London, and Lisbon. In fact, I've been to one of them with my family a few years ago, the one in Boston, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was recommended to me by my late friend Deborah Kletter, a.k.a. The Food Whisperer, who we featured on this podcast before. Flavors have memories. You know, expectation is part of flavor. And so I think when you go and you have an experience where you get to kind of taste um, taste a place, taste a city by the food that they're doing, you know, because it comes from their land and sort of that, that terroir. I don't think that can compare with, with, with anything else that, that you can do. And to share that with people that you love um, is, you know, is especially incredible. Now, I've known Sandy for a number of years and collaborated with her both at the Lighthouse and while she was uh, the FNB operations manager at the Pachika Food Hall, the position she held before becoming the general manager at Time Out Dubai. Sandy also held positions in very successful dining concepts such as La Serre, as I mentioned, and Galerie Lafayette. Before coming to Dubai, she was based in Norway and she also grew up in Sweden, which is where we're kicking off today's episode. Hi, Sandy. Hi. It's nice to see you again. Thank you for having me. I've been trying to have you on the show for some time now, but I you're know. a busy body. You're a busy it's body. It's been, what, two months, three months? Yeah, a couple of months. But, you know, fair enough. You had a big opening. We have this uh, saying in Sweden. Uh, if you Say it in Swedish, please. I think would be everybody would be very amused. Om du väntar på något gott så kan du aldrig vänta för länge. Yeah, so basically, if you're That's the version of Farfrag Nugen in Swedish. <laughs> yeah, whatever that is. But it means if you're waiting for something good, you can never wait long enough. Ah, I like that. I'm sure we so have I a I usually use saying. that in my busy schedule. <laughs> yeah, no, fair enough. You had an open. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, so I forgive you completely. I'm happy you're Thank finally you. here. <laughs> I've known you for some time now, and we've met in the very, very, very early days of the Lighthouse. In fact, pre-Lighthouse even. I mean, we were in information. Yeah. So it's funny when you came in here today and you're like, oh, I know all these things. Yeah. So I think house. <laughs> it's, it's incredible how objects have this, uh, their own memory. And I remember, you know, obviously we worked together on a couple of projects and got to know each other more. But then maybe a few years into it, at some point, we were sitting when you were still with the Pachika in uh, Nakhil Mall. And you were telling me about growing up in Sweden as uh, the daughter of, 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 you know, of Lebanese descent. And it was so interesting because I hadn't thought about that because I'd only met you within the context of Dubai. And all of a sudden I was thinking, you know, that must be strange. Like, especially when you think about Sweden, which obviously comes across at least, and maybe just my perception, is very homogenous. Mm. And someone who is, you know, parents are from Lebanon, who clearly stands out, I'm sure in your school, within your community. I want to start there because I think it has had some impact on you. I'm sure positive and negative or maybe just positive. I will talk about that. But I want to hear about that particular moment for you and what that meant. Where do I start? Oh Anywhere God, you that's want. That's quite a... You were born and raised there the whole no, time? No. I was born in Beirut. Okay. Uh, moved oh. at a very young age. Okay. 
And uh, yeah, as you said, grew up in Sweden and uh, many parts of Sweden started from the north and moved all the way down to the south because it was too cold in the north. So it uh, took some time before my parents adjusted to the, yeah, to the climate. And, and why did they leave Beirut? What was the main reason to go it to Sweden? It was the end of, end of the 80s okay. and, you know, during that time, exactly. So it was the same reason as many others. Many other yeah. Events, yeah. Um, so they came to Sweden, which was uh, not really as per plan. They just ended up in Sweden. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> um, they thought they were going to Switzerland, I'm sure, like so everyone else as well. And we grew up in a city called Hamsta which is between uh, Malmö and Gothenburg okay. on the west coast. And as you said, it's, you know, Lebanese family and a little Swedish community. And sorry to interrupt you, because it strikes me that in that case, it's not like your family came to Sweden a long time ago and you were born and settled there. You were all adjusting at the same time. Yeah. So you were having your own adjustment as a child, but your parents surely were adjusting as 100%. well. They had, of course, the language barrier. They yeah. had to start to study the language. Uh, they went to school and you know, went through the whole difficulty of, you know, how do we enter the uh, uh, starting to work without knowing the language. So there was a lot of things that, you know, held them back from coming from a different country and a lot of struggles, a lot of challenges. You know, how do we take the bus? How do we speak to the bus? For? Like there was a lot of, there's a lot of stories of things that happened where we ended up in the wrong town and, you know, ended up in the wrong But they persevered. The they wanted to they stay. Did. They did. Were you able to come home and complain about this or was it sort of more like, no, we have to be stoic and kind of make this happen? You know, we had such a lovely childhood. Mm. They, no matter what they went through, we only heard about it when we grew up. You and your brother. We never felt anything, me and my sister, before uh, my brothers came in the picture, but we never, we never felt anything. We just thought we were on you a were journey, shielded. right? Mm. Yeah, so... When we started to grow up, after every lunch, every dinner, we used to just sit and listen to all these stories. Oh, when you were a kid, we did that. And mom ended up in the wrong side of town because she didn't know what bus to take. And we were like, really? You went through all of that? And, you know, that's something really inspiring that you think of now. And the older you grow up, the more you appreciate it and the more you think because oh, you're in the same or you face maybe, uh, you know, challenging situations. And you think back and say, how did they do that? Move to a completely new country and, you know, try to take themselves through and try to do the best they could for us. And it was a tough time for sure. And it wasn't at a time like today where if you're Sweden or elsewhere, there is a heightened awareness of this. So even if there is maybe some, call it racism or sexism or whatever it is, yeah. outsiderism, um, they would be far more careful. At that time, people weren't careful. And children are never careful. So how did you perceive that in school? I mean, were, was there bullying? Was there like... For some reason, I never went through that. Okay. Uh, you know, I always ended up making friends. Fitting in. <laughs> Very. I always found it weird. I had only Swedish friends and I didn't know any other immigrants, especially the school I went through and, and my high school. I went through high school when there was not a lot of other immigrants. So it was basically no other nationalities. It was mainly Swedes. So, uh, But it was kind part, of a higher was, social strata, right? I mean, that was part yeah, of it. But the hard part was my family was different, obviously. Yeah. So I noticed <laughs> today that I went completely the opposite. So I found my family being very strange because... Uh, they were very loud, you know, that we Comparatively, ate different, of 100%, and we ate different things. They were very, it was all about family, a lot about family time. They were very included in everything we did. You know, my mom had to know everything. It was that typical Lebanese family of that course. just... Arab family in general. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and mm. it just stood out from what my friends had to go through. So did I, you feel a sense of shame? Like, I don't want to bring my friends home because they're going to figure out yeah, and I where think, this Arab family that... Yeah, or more, I think more anger. Okay. Um, 
I think I took that out of my parents. So I used to fight with my mom very often, mm. uh, every weekend. And I started to work at a very young age mm. because I kept fighting with my mom. So I had to make sure to be away from home. Uh, and I think it was just because I found me being so different. And yeah. so I had the two identities and I had to figure it out. And it was very difficult to balance because when I went to school, I was a person. When I came back home, I was a different person. And then when I tried to integrate those two worlds, there was a lot of difficulties. It wasn't just a normal thing. I had to think through before we did anything. And it was just hard. I, I always had to have an agenda before we planned anything. Oh, So that kind of, you know, that made it a bit difficult. And it made me uh, decide to... I guess, take a different path than yeah. my siblings and, and just do things on my own and became very independent very, very early. Were you the eldest? No. The second second, second out of four. So what did your sister do out of curiosity? How did she react to this and where is she today? My sister, um, we're, oh, we're so different. Okay. It's completely tends to different. Happen. Yeah, she, uh, she is very much closer to the family and much closer relationships to my, to my parents okay. and always been very close to them and everything she does and adapted much more to them but she also went through she Friends. went different high school she had more of a bit of a mix around her so she had a completely different surrounding uh, she went to a completely different school uh, so that of course has an impact so where we went in terms of at a certain age and in terms of university and high schools it completely formed us to who we became and she still had a lot of people from other nationalities so for her it was easier Very to integrate different. Uh, and today she's more Lebanese, I would say. Yeah, then, than, yeah in than, that sense. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating because, you know, I, I went to a German school, but in Cairo, and half the school was German or Swiss. The other half were Egyptians, like myself. And I had friends on both sides. Um, but I remember, to your point, very distinctly that when, um, when I brought friends home, if I brought my Egyptian friends home, yeah. it was very different than when I brought my German or Swiss friends home. Where I, I don't want to say it was an act, but certainly I felt yeah. I was <laughs> putting on. Yeah, I was yeah. adjusting. Yeah. Um, and that was though in Egypt. So, I mean, ultimately you're in your own country. So, yeah. your experience is kind of similar to that, but in Sweden. 100%. Um, with the language barriers as well. So, yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, feeling a little bit embarrassed that my parents didn't speak German. Yeah. But, you know, it wasn't a big deal because I was in Cairo and it was kind of understood. So, I can only imagine I had grown up in German, Germany with that experience. Yeah. So I, I can see how that then took you on your own independent path. How did the FNB part come in? Was that a, a natural gravitation for you or you kind of stumbled on it? I think it's natural coming from a Lebanese family where it's yeah. all about food. So it's in our nature. Did it's your mom our, cook? It's all the time. Okay. Way too many does. meals a day. Okay. <laughs> you know, and, and that's actually something that friends appreciated, especially free, the Swedish uh, friends, yeah, because every time you would come home, there's always there food. food yeah. And there would be two people and she would cook for 20. So yeah. this this was just a part of the nature. And I think it was... It wasn't. It was just so natural to get into that aspect. But I actually started in housekeeping, so I never really you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Well, I saw your LinkedIn uh, account too, and I had to do double take because you yeah. had mentioned to me. But I, I thought it was very interesting that you actually even mentioned that in your LinkedIn LinkedIn yeah, profile, very which I loved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was a very important time. I mean, it was of course it was a, such a young age. Yeah, and you know, it's something Ooh, that bottom up essentially started uh, as a summer job, and then you continued doing that, and then I ended up uh, having another job serving pizza in the cool pizza place in town and then you know then i took another job where i was calling as a marketeer doing um uh, research by phone so i had three jobs in during high school so i was basically 
you know, 24-7, just making sure I occupied my time. And I actually enjoyed it. I enjoyed learning so much and just made sure that I had my hands full all the time. But it was just who I was out of nature. I never thought that it took me into that F&B route. But, you know, it's interesting because when I met you, that was obviously many years later here in Dubai. And at the time you uh, had just, I think, left La Serre and you were the general manager there. And we started talking a little bit about, you know, recruiting and staff. And you, you brought some people to our attention. Some of them are still with us still today. And I remember being very, very interested in the fact that you had a lot of empathy and an easy connection with a lot of the staff members, regardless of where they came from, backgrounds, nationality, and all of that. And I, I have seen others, obviously, especially when they get to a sort of more senior level at, at, at F&B, they're a little bit more reluctant to do that because there's, you almost don't want to make it too informal. But you were able to be firm, because I saw you, you know, doing yeah. it but you still were able to relate to them. And I think that it, was, I, it struck me immediately as something very interesting and very powerful. And I don't know, I don't want to like sort of turn it into a, a psychological session, but you know, I think maybe having also started from the bottom and having taken some of these jobs, you've seen this. This wasn't alien sense. to you. Yeah, that has a lot to do with it. It's yeah. like everything that everyone is doing, you know exactly. Yeah, you know the hardship, you know exactly what it yeah. means. You know what they're going through, you know that some days they won't like it, you know that some days they're not doing a good job, but you know the reason why and you just need to be there and carry them up for it. But the thing is, I also had someone, uh, I worked for some very good people during a very young age and that's how I learned as well because they were so close but still so firm and still managed to motivate you, although they were always there and they were so supportive. And I, until today, these are some of the best people I've ever worked with and I I feel that I'm so grateful for had that time because it was at a very young age when I moved to Norway, and um, for them there was no hierarchy. There, this is a hotel director and F&B manager, and there was no hierarchy in terms of who you are as a position. When I was standing in the kitchen working as a chef, they would come in and stand next to me, check on me if I need anything, and not interfere or anything, but always be around. And they teach me this culture of if you just you know, empower people and just trust them and, and support them. And you hire the right people, obviously. This is how you make people grow. And this is how you make people give 100% back in return. So I owe them for that. And I feel that they put the substance of the basics of the person I wanted to be when I entered this field. And of course, you change over time and you mature over time. And I came to Dubai managing as if I thought I was in, in Scandinavia. That so why did you well. come to Dubai? I mean, these were relatively early days. Again, now you've grown up I mean, I can understand that you would have said, oh, I want to go spend a year in Beirut and discover my roots. But yeah. why did you decide on Dubai? Yeah, it was because the older you get, especially because you're pushed away where you're from yeah. at a young age. Not at sure. some point, you want to find it back. And I think that that's what I was seeking because I moved to Norway at a young age. So I moved even further off from my family. So I was even more away. And I just felt there was something that wanted to bring me back to where I was from. But why but Dubai, not Beirut, say? Because I could not see myself in Beirut. only traveling or in a place where there's not a lot of opportunities because I wanted to work. Mm-hmm. So it was also part of that, you know, knowing. And it wasn't only about uh, going back to the Lebanese uh, yeah. or the Arab culture. It was... It was about just meeting other people, other nationalities. Dubai does. I became very, you know, Scandinavian. It was only, especially yeah. I lived in, in Norway, I lived in a little resort of 4,000 people. So it became very closed. And I just and you were aware of it. 100%. And you always, you know, you check in with yourself. You're like, okay, this is, you know, this is all I know. But I feel there's much more and I want to relate to other cultures and other nationalities. And, and I actually came here for a holiday first. And okay. I had a friend, we were celebrating her birthday at uh, Skybar in uh, Burj Al Arab. 
And I'll tell wow. you the funny incident was that we order a, a Jacquesson champagne. And the waiter that brought us the champagne really struggled to open the bottle. And I remember it was so frustrating because I was sommelier at that time. And I just wanted to help him to take the bottle. And I've seen you do this many times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I looked around and I was thinking, there's all these people coming here to the Seven Star Hotel. And, you know, it's such a beautiful experience. And this is a part of the experience. But it needs to go down to the details. So it really bothered me that it wasn't in place. So I thought, well, maybe I should come here and teach about wine. <laughs> and that's how it ended. And I went back to Scandinavia and I thought, I think... You know, this maybe there is a potential because there is a lot of, there's a lot of restaurants, a lot of hotels. Uh, but then I thought I've been overworking a bit for some time in Norway. So I actually moved here to rather study and take a step back, but yeah. also to be part of this whole tourism that was, you know, booming at that time. So that kind of brought me here with a lot of combinations. And then eventually you were thrust in sort of the deep end, so to speak. You went to La Serre, which was a beast. At the yes. time, I mean, La Serre was, just for those that don't know it, I mean, it was sort of the post-LPM move. A lot of the staff, the, the head chef, many others went there. A lot of people were saying LPM will die. Everybody wanted to go to La Serre. Yeah. Um, it was extremely busy, very kind of sought after in the press. And you were in the middle of all of this with a big staff. Yeah. And a big responsibility. This wasn't a small place. There was well, a boulangerie downstairs. Yeah. It was upstairs, a full restaurant, bar. It wasn't, what, it wasn't what I was going for. I went just to help them out yeah. on a weekend. And, and I went to run <laughs> bread baskets in the boulangerie. That's literally what I did. I remember I was standing there and cutting bread, baguette, one breakfast. And the head sommelier came down. He's like, but you're a sommelier? I said, yes. And he's like, but we need help upstairs. Said, sure. So that evening I went upstairs and I did a shift upstairs and then a couple of Weeks later, uh, Chef Izu came in and he says, I need a head sommelier. <laughs> sure. And I jumped into that role. And at the same time, I was studying. So I was doing both, both uh, full time. A couple of months later, restaurant manager. And a couple of months later, GM. So it was a lot happening within yeah. a very short period of time. And then, of course, we were very, very chaotic opening. It was... Uh, we were struggling with the demand, basically, yeah, and yeah, yeah. it was just, it was the good problems to have. <laughs> I can but, relate to that. <laughs> but it was, you know, and also being, of course, a part of EMAR, there was a lot of things internally that had to adjust and had to change. So it was a very tough journey, and there was, uh, we were at some point 170 people um, at, a, at a total, as a total staff, so... It was a beautiful journey, though. It yeah. was a very roller coaster, well, the learning up is, and down. Is, is 100%, invaluable, right? Hundred percent. It was such a beautiful place. I mean, until today, when I drive down the boulevard, I sometimes avoid looking on my right because I, <laughs> you still have that feeling because you did spend a lot of time, and you know, it meant a lot. Well, and you've clearly done something right because Amar has called you back, and now you have a job running Time Out, which is a partnership they have with Amar. Yes. Um, yes. Did how when you and we're gonna go into bits of that journey when you look at yourself today versus then, what do you feel is is different in terms of your perspective on where you want to be, but also on on the F and B scene here in this place, which evolved so much since. What I'm trying to say here, sorry, and I'm just very curious about your view because La Serre in many ways was taking sort of those French you know elements that LPM had. And it was still, even though it was a homegrown concept, and one of the very early homegrown concepts, they were very successful, it still didn't feel like one because it was sort of had that whole French look. And since then, you know, many of those imported concepts and franchises have struggled where the homegrown concept have flourished. You're now in a, something that has a little bit of both. Yeah. It's a homegrown concept in a way because you're, 
you're you're picking homegrown concepts within the timeout platform mm. but timeout as a concept is obviously an american concept that was imported mm. so Walk us through kind of how you feel about all of this. I mean, it depends what angle you look at it. I mean, at in in that time frame, uh, it was completely different market conditions, of right. course. And I think that the boulangerie as a concept was stronger than the upstairs, the bistro of La Serre. And you can see that until today because it's still doing well. And that's more in terms of the, you know, the location and the potential that it had. And it was something different and it still is something different. I mean, it's changed over time. Uh, while upstairs was perhaps, you know, something you already were familiar with. It was a bistro that did have a root somewhere else and it did have similarities somewhere else. So for that reason, it's not as strong position today, but it was completely different times. And and personally, I mean, from that person I was at that time compared to You've today, evolved a lot. it's not even, I mean, sometimes like, how did I do that <laughs> eight years ago? Because now you you understand, especially when you work with corporations like Emar, there's a big, you know, political structure that you need to know your way around or else yeah. it's, it's mission impossible yeah. because it's, it's a lot of things that needs to match because the last thing you want to do is, is to let whatever politics on the top fall through to the journey, to the customer experience. And that's kind of um, what I think had become much easier. Uh, but also it's, it is in a different setting. Uh, looking at timeout and looking at that concept, I think, I, I feel I have such an honor to be a part of something that curates all the homegrown yeah. Uh, concepts and bringing them together in such an important time uh, yeah. that we're in today. With strong support, obviously. With s- extremely strong yeah. support. Well, the resources coming from are there, a, which helps. You know, time at market as a, as a structure, as a company that is set up with amazing people that are working there, uh, that, you know, has already a structure in place that we have, this is the seventh market. So from Lisbon to the States, to Canada, and now Dubai, it's, you already have so many people involved and you've already tested it out and it has, has had its journey, you know, elsewhere. Can you see yourself one day starting your own no. show? <laughs> <laughs> no. We'll get into why starting her own F&B venture is something Sandy is not interested in, or at least she claims that for now, and her thoughts on the local food scene and its evolution, right after the short break. I wanted to take a minute and tell you about our friends at Monviso, one of our sponsors who make this show possible. Monviso is founded by an Italian entrepreneur right here in Dubai and has evolved into one of the region's most popular mineral waters sourced directly from the Italian Alps. We immediately connected with the Monviso's team vision and how giving back is such an integral part of their mission. Through their extensive recycling program and their Take Water, Give Life initiative, proceeds from every bottle of water sold is donated to Al Jalila Foundation to support its education and research. So stock up on still or mineral water by using our exclusive Monviso discount code, Lighthouse10, which you can redeem at store.monviso.com. Once again, the code is Lighthouse10, L-I-G-H-T-H-O-U-S-E-10. Welcome back. You're listening to the Lighthouse Conversations with Sandy Hayek, General Manager of Time Out Market Dubai. What's so fascinating about all of this is that, you know, you, one would think that you grew up in Europe, your natural inclination would be, I'm going to come to Dubai and I've seen some things in Europe and I can either bring some of these concepts here or replicate them here. And yet over time, obviously this has been an evolution, but you have focused really more on homegrown concepts. Everyone is supported, whether informally 
or in your jobs, including ourselves. Yeah. I mean, we've had a lot of support from you over the years, and you and I have had an open channel for many years, have really been uh, homegrown, homegrown concepts, which to me feel very close to your heart. Mm. I'm just wondering, <laughs> and I'm, again, I don't want to like make this overly psychological, <laughs> but if this is sort of, again, goes back to this whole concept with your mom and the Lebanese food in Sweden and so on and so forth, because you feel very strongly about this. When you went to the Pachika, even before, mm. you felt very strongly that you wanted to see a homegrown concept and you thought the really strong ones could be even exported. Yes. And I'm including ourselves in that mix. Yeah. The lighthouse that is. Why, why that strong feeling about this versus the idea of, oh, well, I can bring a bunch of concepts and they'll fit very well in Dubai. It's very cosmopolitan and here we go. I guess because there was a very important time uh, in Norway. I keep referring to that because I had a, uh, was running a place that was called Sofia's. Mm-hmm. And that place, it's a tiny little bistro, but it was, it was extremely popular. And the amount of effort I put into that and the success that it did over the years, it just gives you this understanding of when you have people that has an idea and they do it from scratch, it cannot beat what you're bringing in as Why? a brand equity. Why? Because of the soul, because of mm. what you're delivering as an experience, because there is such a strong purpose that will leverage through down to the person coming in from that door. And I felt that, yes, we do have the privilege of having all the resources where we can get any brand from, from abroad, but we have had more than enough, but you still feel there's a certain feeling that you cannot feel in places. And at the end of the day, hospitality is all about how you make people feel Mm -hmm. and I just found that there was such a lack but there was at the same time so much potential and um, it's not easy knowing the structure of setting up your own business here and the amount of good chefs or the amount of good concept creators that was in Dubai still didn't have the structure of being able to be in prime locations or uh, be able to have that restaurant that they actually deserve to have and you Mm -hmm. just saw that potential and the gap in between. What, in your view, makes a successful concept? What do you look for when you're looking today to pick concepts, whether a timeout or some of your previous jobs, because that was something you've been doing now for many years? The core and the bottom of everything, it's the the product. Mm. I mean, the purpose. To find that it. product. Yeah. Is it the food? Is it the chef? Is it the owners? 100%. Is it- I mean... Today, especially with the educated consumer that we have, you cannot fool people. So if you, and if the, if there's anything, you just want to build on that regular base, especially in Dubai, obviously with the limited population that we have. So um, having a purpose of someone that essentially is an expert in what they do, and they create that core identity, no, regardless of what happens, whether you have just plastic chairs or whatever is outside there, it's still going to bring people back. And I think that that's where we lose track because we think if we bring a brand or if we bring that furniture or if we bring that, you know, at the end of the day, it needs to be what are you coming for and what is it that brings you back? And it's very difficult. I, I hate when I get the question, what's your favorite place in Dubai? Yeah, I'm not going to answer that question. You know, it's, I obviously it's know the answer, just but so hey. hard. It's just so hard, but it shouldn't be. I mean, with the amount of places we have here, we should be thinking, oh my God, which one should I choose? But until today, it is extremely hard because it's difficult to see that red line between the purpose of why that concept was created to the uh, delivery of that concept and I think that essentially you need that core brand identity what is the purpose of that business before you just add the rest of the formula to it Um, and you notice that today especially after COVID those places that survived and done better than others are those but what's their differentiation I'm going to push again I'm not looking for a specific example but broadly speaking is it that they have to have one differentiated element or is it just the food that's ultimately the main sort of arbiter? I, mean, I guess... Because there are places that have done very well that have, I would say, you know, 
good food, but nothing extraordinary, and vice versa. So I am, I am myself struggling with this question. I mean, what makes a concept work? Actually, it's a two, two-way question. Yeah. Uh, two-part question. What makes it work? And then the second part, when we've both seen this of concepts that have homegrown concepts that are yeah. started really strongly, but then uh, floundered. Yeah. And because they overexpanded, too much capital comes in. Finding um, resources. All keeping of that. resources. All of that. I think that's also, you know, it's, um, I think at the end of the day, essentially, you need to have that core product. But of course, there's a lot of other things that affects and resources is another very important part because you could have that brilliant chef that starts something, but you cannot, you cannot take for granted that you can keep him. And I think that's another thing that we struggle with. So you have some places that disappeared off the radar today that you would actually look back and say, if that was until today, that would have been my favorite place. And sometimes I think of places like, I wish I could go there, but it doesn't even exist today because either they were not able to keep up with the rent or it was the wrong location or the chef moved on. So it's very sensitive. How do you maintain something so strong over time? It's very complicated. And because I think the cost to set up your own F&B concept or restaurant here is still very high, what I've seen is two things. Either you have very talented chefs that try to yeah. start their own concepts. They're typically not the best business people. Mm-hmm. They tie up with someone on the business side. And then eventually there's a conflict between what the chef wants and what the business people want. Or owner operators that may not be chefs, but are creative and know how to start concepts. But again, they don't have the resources. So they have to get external capital. And they wind up over time being employees in their own shop. Exactly. With somebody outside telling them, you know what, you've done very well here. Open in Riyadh, open in Jeddah, open Abu Dhabi and tomorrow. Suddenly that person that should be a part of that concept is all over the place. And exactly. you lose that essence exactly. straight away. Exactly. Like how many places do you have the chef that started the concept that is actually in the kitchen today? Very versus few. if you go to New York, for example, how many chefs are actually in the kitchen until today? Or maybe they might step out after two, 20 years or 30 years. Yeah. Here, what's the average? Two years, much, three much years? Before, yeah, because I mean, it is a trend that it's been a trend for the past couple of years, and the the rapid growth is is just insane because it provides those opportunities for chefs that hasn't really put a legacy into a place before they move on. But what can be done tangibly to change that? I mean, it's a very tough challenge. It is because we live in a place where you know we're talking about the investors that are coming in or people that are chasing talent. And they and there's this it's uh, culture stop. of immediacy, right? <laughs> yeah. They want everything today. Yeah, exactly. They want everything today. They want, they want a lot of copying of what they've seen without understanding, you know, if, if there is an actual expertise behind the person that they've chosen. So sometimes a person might fail because he gets too excited about the opportunity, but it's not the right opportunity for him. So I think there's a lot of things that it, we are the ones growing and expanding it, but we're also the one holding back for how good Char F&B can be. It's still extremely good. <laughs> Just saying that yeah. it, there are a couple of places that it's a shame that they have not, you know, stand stronger today than where, what they could have. And do you see this trend of homegrown concepts continuing versus sort of the more franchise? I think it's just the beginning. Yeah. This is just I the beginning. I have the same feeling. Yeah, because we, I mean, imagine a couple of years from now, we're definitely expecting to see more of this. Uh, yeah. And especially places, I mean, I would want to look back five years and say, this is a homegrown place that is still strong until yeah. today. We, we don't have that yet, not many. Yeah, not uh, many. So I think that this is just the beginning. Uh, but then bringing the right talent and bringing the right expertise and keeping people in place, that's always going to be our main struggle. No, I think that's right. I'm thinking about what you're saying. And when I look at homegrown, homegrown concepts 
that are four, five, six years old, very few. Yeah. Um, and you know how you go to a place sometimes, if it's not the food, you would go because you know someone or someone will make a booking for you or correct. the service or a, a certain waiter. Today, correct. you have to that think twice, right? The communal feeling of a place is yeah. very hard to replicate here because, because also... you feel that you're valued. You feel that someone would recognize you because you've been there, even if it's not because of the food or maybe it's the vibe or whatever it is. But until today, if you think about that person, you have to think twice. Is that person that place or did he move to that place? Or, you know, it's like people just keep circulating as well. And I think that kind of affects what we have. Do you have the feeling that the kind of expertise and knowledge that you've built over the years is better served here versus, for example, going back to Sweden or going back to... Norway, yeah, because I mean, I I, I'm, I'm going to talk about myself. I, you know, grew up in Egypt, as you well know, and then moved to the States and to the UK for a while. And even in banking, even before I started this industry, which I kind of stumbled upon, I had a very strong feeling that even then, the limited knowledge and experience I have would have far more of a tangible impact here than it would there. Absolutely. There, I felt like a cog in a machine, frankly, in London and New York. And here I didn't. And I feel the same thing about what, what I'm doing now. And I'm wondering if, if that's the feeling you have. A hundred percent. It's, uh, I mean, I think what I mainly bring is probably the Scandinavian mentality of long-term feasible projects that not everything has to be instant. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's exactly what we need here. We need to kind of take a, you know, a step back and, and hold up and look around before we continue because it just, you know, it's painful to see the amount of resources going into projects that are failing or that are being pushed too quickly in the wrong time just because of the wrong reasons. So I think that whenever, you know, I take on a project, it's how would that work with the partners coming in, with the amount of shareholders, with the amount of stakeholders, because I come from a mentality that it needs to be in harmony, it needs to be in balance from the top all the way down. And that's kind of what I mainly focus on to, to essentially make sure that you protect that concept to succeed because you want to make sure that everyone is in balance and that's a very Scandinavian <laughs> mentality I think rather than you know from the Arab side where I also have a little temper from that side too, <laughs> of course so I try to balance both of them no, it's a good mix I agree. yeah but I definitely think that I have an, an impact specifically when it comes to to that area and you do a lot of difference but then at the end of the day if you would think if I would go back to Scandinavia of course there's a lot of experience and there's a lot of exposure that you can bring with you back because there is a lot of good things that we've done in Dubai as well and I think Scandinavia could need some of that too well, yeah, well, it's so, <laughs> so interesting, you can always right that you're saying this yeah. if you recall when we first opened the lighthouse and the kind of interior and the look and feel was almost a bit Scandinavian, right? Because it's a bit it's minimalist. Very it's very white, yeah. <laughs> Yet I was very concerned that we'd have that without the soul. And I was, I, I hope that didn't happen. But, you know, and that was always sort of this attention. You know, I, I personally gravitate towards a kind of more minimalist aesthetic and, and, and something that's very clean and, and, you know, probably kind of airier. Um, I'm not a maximalist, maximalist in that sense, but those can also look clinical, um, and it's a, it's a fine line. And where I feel, again, I'm kind of generalizing here, but if you go to Sweden or Norway, some of the other Scandinavian countries, sometimes that's what you feel is lacking. Yeah. It looks beautiful, but it's too clinical. Yeah. It's almost too clean. 
Mm-hmm. You're, they're not really having fun. No one is doing anything messy. Yeah. <laughs> you need a little bit of both. Yeah. And it's a hard mix. I guess it's a, also a category of, of certain concepts as well, Correct. right? So Correct. I think what was really, um, I mean, with the lighthouse, when it started as well, something that was so interesting was it was supposed to be a store and the way how the journey completely changed. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. And I, I, I also think that it was before the time that we appreciate, start to appreciate minimalistic design as well. So it was a little bit ahead of time. Yeah. Um, and it fell to everyone's taste because it is a gorgeous space and, you know, with the light and with the brightness and, you, yeah. and I remember the amount of time you worked on the light. Uh, <laughs> I spent a lot of days there and the music and the sound. And these are so essential, especially yeah. in such a place with all the, you know, minimal details. So I think that what was really interesting was just to see how it started as a store and just turned into a full on and I was so against those shelvings in the beginning. <laughs> I remember that. I said well. that you need to have more chairs and tables. And then, well, many of them are gone happened. now. <laughs> <laughs> now you just have that little uh, corner and it's, yeah. you know, it's a full on dining. Yeah, yeah and, and to your point, and this is a very, very good point, I think, and, and also sort of is echoed in your own career. It's a journey, right? I think I instinctively felt that many people, including yourself, that gave me this advice were right. But I feel like we had to go through that journey mm. and learn for ourselves and also evolve as we saw the taste of consumers and the interest of consumers. I think it's very hard to, you know, and, and I see this now that we're expanding and with the second location and, and more to come, hopefully, where you have certain ideas. But then when you open and you see the customer interacting with the space, yes. You learn better, essentially, yeah. right? And you have to just not be too stubborn to say, I know better and say, you know what? That's what they want. And that's exactly what it's about. And I think that everyone has an opinion. If we would listen to everyone. Correct. That's I mean, true as well. Especially in FMB and especially in Dubai. 100%. There's a lot of... You, you get both criticized and you get comments from left and right about things. And you should not, I mean, you should not take an immediate response or an immediate action on it. And as you said, when you open a place, especially being new to it, you have to see the flow. You have to let it organically breathe and turn into what it's supposed to turn into. Uh, but you still know where you want to head it. But it should be a balance between the end consumer and yourself and the team and not opening too many doors to many comments from outside i mean we're always open to feedback but you know especially when it's new it's something that you need to experience can you see yourself one day starting your own no, show? <laughs> <laughs> no i'm not i mean you the question was coming you i was know, smiling I always... to give you some forewarning so i always yeah get that question and <laughs> well I, it, it, it's a testament I, to your I talent think, i think i'm i'm in a position where i I'm thinking, why am I in this industry today? And it's not necessarily, I, I have so much passion for it, but it's it's my life, it's my identity, whether it's food or wine or, or travel or hospitality or hotels. It, it's just what I really, truly have always enjoyed and, and you know, been interested in. Um, but ultimately, it's the people side. So mm. if I would open a restaurant based on that, it's not the right purpose. You know, I... I love to be that support function of any people that are really you know want to open a restaurant or but I think ultimately it's I have um over average interest in organizational culture Mm. and I think that that's kind of I've known that all along and it's about uh bigger organizations or smaller organizations and just the human interaction and the structure of people and how essentially the people are 
the ones that are supposed to deliver, whether it's a restaurant or any other industry, but how they come together and how you can improve that from efficiency to well-being to uh, when it's about the people. And I think that that's another potential around here in this region, that it's about the people and not vice versa because we're so financially focused. And I think that that doesn't lead me to a restaurant. <laughs> that's so interesting. So it's sort of almost the, the organizational chart and culture yeah. and systems yeah. and processes that interest you the most it doesn't yeah. mean you're not instant f&b but does that applies to hospitality as well and there it's, it's it such does. an inefficient industry 100%. i mean so maybe you don't open your own restaurant maybe you open your own hotel i don't know <laughs> or maybe nothing <laughs> yeah no i'm just trying no, to maybe uh, i guess I mean, that I skill set to, applies to so many things I, yeah but i think i would not um you know, unless you really, I would never enter something unless I really burn for it or I, yeah. I really, uh, this is something that I want to put 150%. So you on. see yourself generally more kind of in a COO type of role versus a, you know what I mean, in the sense of kind of an operating processes driven role? Yeah, I think, you know, to put fundamentals into place okay. and allow people that has the skill set to Flourish. evolve and to that's grow. So interesting. And, I mean, that's, that's, and I think that that's, that's where I have the biggest passion. Just see, and even in hospitality or restaurants, whatever it is, within, yeah. definitely within that field. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the what, field you know well. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's about the psychology and behavior of people from the organization itself to the consumer so even you know consumer behavior and consumer psychology and putting that together to understand the demand before we actually develop a supplier develop a concept i think that's more of an interest okay i think that's very interesting so going into a kitchen now and cooking it would be fun and i would love to do that yeah. <laughs> in spare time but it wouldn't be I, I just do not have the drive strong enough that i had years back that would allow me to well and i think the human interaction part of being on the floor so to speak is draining i mean there's mm. no question about it it's a little bit like in finance you used to say trading is for you know young people yeah. you can be a great trader in your 20s and 30s by your 40s it's honestly very hard because it, what it takes out of you yeah uh, is is almost too much yeah. and you have a set of experiences at that point that are probably better served in a different support function 100 percent, as you said it and this is definitely there's a point i mean there's the amount of people especially now i mean we're talking about thousands of people daily and you see that constantly you constantly engage with people and you know all people but actually you don't really know all people and it's it's a lot of conversations to have so as you said it's it's uh, it's not an easy job either i mean it's uh, it's very fun though it's fun to meet new people of course and to engage with people and you learn a lot but it's also very intense and you have to balance that out to know when to step away from it and and how to keep that good part of it uh, to not get into the overwhelming part of it <laughs> which also happens very easily one final question for you in terms of your current job at timeout timeout has been very successful in many parts of the world very early days for dubai but which direction do you feel this timeout will take if you compare it to some of the others? I've seen some in, you know, Boston, I've seen it in New York, I've seen it in Portugal, I've seen it in a number of places. Do you feel, I mean, every, everyone has, I'm sure, its own DNA. Yeah. Um, which DNA do you feel this one, which direction is it heading to? I said since the beginning that uh, because Lisbon was the first market in mm. 2014 and just seeing the success of it today um, and and just just the identity of that market. I want to make sure that we stick as close to that as possible. Uh, Even in though you're in a mall and Lisbon was, what was it before? Was it like a... It was just well, a filming center or yeah, something, yeah, yeah. but like a pause, right? Yeah, but so, it has nothing to do. I mean, of course, the location is mm. uh, essential, but I think it's more about just bringing such good 
concepts okay. together that's yeah. you know you can place them anywhere you'll still be able to to get the, the footfall there and what we really want is when people come to visit Dubai is to drive them into what do we do in Dubai or what are we really good at and that's exactly where you need to go so I think that based on the two months of being open this is the right direction that we're taking and it's heading you know it's going through different phases so the first phase is obviously the love and how we're being received by sure. people in Dubai and the second phase is when you turn into that regular crowd and when you pass the hype and you turn into the regular visits of the local population then the third is when we get the tourists, the tourists. Back in. so I was gonna I was gonna say and it's a bit of a trick question and you'll find a very diplomatic way to answer it um, do you see it more of a tourist destination or a kind of um, residence a tourist, destination. Okay. tourist destination. Because you know like it's, how people say Dubai Mall is for tourists and Mall of the Emirates the for entire, residents? The entire purpose of Time at Market is really obviously you bring yeah. these brands together and you give them exposure for the tourists or for people visiting the country. So it is a global brand with a local soul. Mm. And you know when you have visitors, there's nothing worse than they ask you, where do I go? Where right. do you book them to yeah, go and eat? Go, yeah, and exactly. just having that place to send them to. So essentially it is a tourist destination. And do you see the Dubai uh, outpost being a blueprint for the rest of the GCC? Potentially, a hundred percent. This is also because you know, we look at Saudi Arabia one. today, and some of the those places are very keenly attracting tourists. Yeah. So I mean, as a time of market as well, it ha- it's going to have its journey in the region. So Abu Dhabi is in the pipeline, and and so is Saudi and, and Bahrain because there is a lot of potential, and they're just following the same footsteps. So brilliant. That's where it's heading. Well, Sandy, thank you. That was thank very you. interesting, illuminating, <laughs> and we hope to have you back anytime. And all the best. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Lighthouse Conversations with me, Hashem Montasser. We're produced by Chirag Desai and our content director is Farah Sharif. You can tell us what you thought of this episode by leaving us a short review in your podcast app or finding us on Instagram at the Lighthouse underscore AE. And please, please, please share a link with your friend if you've liked this episode. We'll see you in two weeks.